we end up arguing that aiming for good crunch is a bit of a trap. It limits the ability for developers to imagine what fully crunchless production might look like. And so it becomes this obstacle to really rethinking labor more expansively. Welcome everyone to the third episode of Conversations and Game Studies, a series of podcast talks with scholars who research video games on an academic level. I am your host, Adam Hushedi, talking to you from the Vienna campus of Central European University, and today I'm joined by Amanda Coti from the University of Oregon in the US. Our topic today is the extraordinary amount of overtime that many video game developers put into their work, also known as crunch. But before that, a bit about my guest. Amanda Coti is an assistant professor of media studies and game studies at the University of Oregon's School of Journalism and Communication. She also co-leads the eSports and Games Research Lab at her institution. And beyond that, she's also affiliated with the Center for the Study of Women in Society and with the New Media and Culture Certificate Program at the University of Oregon. Amanda has completed her PhD in Communication Studies at the University of Michigan in 2016, and in her work, she focuses on the industry and gaming culture with a very strong emphasis on gender, identity and representation, as well as game labor, and she also does research into the culture of esports. Amanda's first book was published in 2020 by New York University Press, and it's called Gaming Sexism, Gender and Identity in the Era of Casual Video Games, in which Amanda covers the complex and often problematic experience of female gamers within game culture, as well as the backlash against marginalized groups becoming more and more visible in this medium. Amanda has actually already done a great podcast discussion about her book with the Ethics and Video Games podcast, so I strongly encourage anybody interested in it to check this discussion out. In some of her recent work, Amanda and her colleagues have looked into the phenomenon of developer crunch and why excessive amounts of overtime and frequently even unpaid labor are still rampant in the video game industry. In their 2021 article in New Media and Society, The Cruel Optimism of Good Crunch, Amanda and her colleague Brandon Harris have investigated how video game developers themselves interpret crunch and how the stories and narratives that they tell each other have frequently perpetuated unsustainable labor practices. So first and foremost, Amanda, thank you very much for joining me. Thank you for having me. And before we delve into our main topic, Amanda, I would like to ask you how you got into game studies in the first place and maybe how widespread the field is in the U.S. and how easy or hard it is to establish yourself in game studies in general. What has been your experience on this journey? So I found it uh, easy to get into game studies, but I will say I've discovered that's because a lot of people did a lot of work before I got here. So People have studied games for quite some time. So the journal Game Studies, for instance, was founded in 2001. Um, The Digital Games Research Association, one of our key academic groups, first met in 2003. So I was an undergraduate in university between 2006 and 2010. Game Studies was at that point already a field, already in existence. There were journals, there were articles, there were conferences, but it was also still a little bit nascent. And so at that time, I was studying media studies 
And in my undergrad university, it was a competitive major. It was a smaller department, so you actually had to apply to become a major. And as part of that application, you had to write an essay. And I could not figure out what I wanted to write about. So I was asking all of my friends who were applying, what are you writing about? What are you writing about? And they were writing predominantly about film and television. So I thought, okay, how can I stand out? I have to do something different. And I was playing quite a bit of World of Warcraft at the time. And one day I was playing and realized that in World of Warcraft, there was a Valentine's Day event, which I guess I view as a very uh, Western holiday. And there was a Lunar New Year event, which of course, um, Lunar New Year is celebrated in East Asia. And so this was my, my light bulb moment, my idea. I said, oh, I will write about online games and the potential for cultural crossovers. And it was a success. I got accepted to the media studies major. I must have written the essay uh, adequately. And then I started looking more and more into work about game studies for subsequent papers. And I realized that there was a lot of really interesting work out there, but a lot of the questions I was interested in, questions about things like, what are the experiences of female gamers? And why do the people at college think it's weird when I come play Halo with them? Those questions were in the process of being answered and weren't yet at the level of, of detail that I wanted to answer them in. Uh, so I started answering them and kind of never stopped. And it's been, like I said, uh, for me, a pretty smooth process. But when I speak to people even a, a couple years older than me or who got into the field a few years before I did, I will say that they spend a little bit more time defending why games matter. And I guess it's also leading me into our topic of discussion, because I think the issue of game labor law is probably one of the most relatable ones, even to non-gamers, because it's such a huge issue in general in the creative industry. We could hear reports about how Marvel Studios are crunching their graphic artists and whatnot recently. So I think creative media in general is not maybe the greatest field for professionals working in it. But could you maybe elaborate a bit on what makes video game development so susceptible to overtime, or maybe even worse in terms of overtime than other creative industries. So my colleague, Brandon Harris, and I have, have explored this topic from a couple different perspectives. And one of the things that's important to note from the start is that game development is hard. Games are very expensive to make. They require a very high upfront investment. And then of course they have a very uncertain payoff. This also leads many developers to need outside investment. They don't necessarily have the funds to make a game on their own. And so this leads to what um, other theorists, uh, Amanda Pettica Harris, uh, Jose Marie Legault, and Joanna Westar have called the Iron Triangle, um, the combined influence of budget constraints, deadlines, and product specifications, being able to make the game for the technology. When developers have to balance all of these, if one starts to fall, the solution is often to throw more people or more hours at it because you have to produce the game that the publisher is expecting. Uh, the work of other people like Casey O'Donnell has also pointed to some of the cultural aspects. Uh, video game industries are very secretive. Uh, a lot of companies have very stringent non-disclosure agreements. And so this leads to what uh, Casey O'Donnell has called a culture of secrecy, where developers are so hesitant to talk about their work out of fear of violating these non-disclosure agreements that they don't even share general strategies for how they schedule or avoid crunch. And then, of course, the video game industry has not been unionized. 
all of these are tough. In addition to these factors, Brandon and I have found a lot of cultural factors that help crunch persist. Um, so we have done some analyses of trade press, uh, game developer magazine and uh, presentations at the annual game developers conference to see how developers speak to each other about topics surrounding crunch. And we found that a lot of people view games as this unmanageable creative industry. The idea that you can't or shouldn't try and schedule a creative endeavor. One of our favorite quotes about this uh, from Game Developer Magazine said, game development was once described to me as building a house on top of a moving train in space with dinosaurs. It's never an easy process and you have to learn to deal with the unexpected. So we found that a lot of people kind of just throw their hands up at the idea of scheduling, uh, but if you don't have any schedule, it's very easy to miss deadlines and not realize it and then have to throw a bunch of extra time at a project towards the end. We also found that there's a pretty strong anti-corporate ethos in a lot of the video game industry. There's this romanticizing of the early years of garage development, uh, the idea of a small group of people working together because they're friends, volunteering to work long hours because they care about the product. Uh, and this breeds resistance to the kind of corporate structures or organization that are at odds with that image, but which might make it easier again to schedule and manage project after project. And then, of course, developers are in games because they love them. There's this stereotypical developer identity that's really based on passion and perfectionism. Devs get into games because they've played games their whole life. They want to contribute back to that industry. But this often leads to a higher supply of workers uh, than there is a demand for them, which makes it difficult to critique labor practices. And it encourages to developers to go really above and beyond, to put in those extra hours to prove their love for the games, for the industry. And so this overall builds a kind of culture where crunch is normalized. We refer to it in our first article as a habitus of crunch. This is then worsened by the ideology of good crunch versus bad crunch. That's actually one of the most fascinating things that popped up at me reading your article, that since you have looked at so much of the video game press and video game conferences that took place in the last 15 years, that they have actually been discussing crunch way, way back, 15 years back. So it seems so absurd when we today are getting these horror stories, not just from studios, which arguably grew too fast, like CD Projekt Red, let's say in Poland, but also veteran studios like Naughty Dog etc., who have a terrible history of crunch on certain projects. And it's, it's just baffling that even though it's been at the center of discussion in many ways, it still persists. Yes, uh, there's still a very lingering uh, like machismo in a lot of the material we assessed for our studies, which really views working long hours and going above and beyond as a way of proving yourself or proving your commitment to games or your career. I will say it does seem to be going down a little bit. And that's where we find the good crunch versus bad crunch divide to start becoming the bigger barrier. It's less now about this macho, I can work long hours, I can take it. And now it seems to be more about not being able to envision what video game industries look like without crunch at all. Our good crunch and bad crunch article that you mentioned emerged kind of out of the first piece we did when we were just looking at overall, how do developers talk about this? And we realized that this idea of good crunch undergirded a lot of our findings. And so we, we explored it a little bit more. And we found that a lot of developers distinguished between what they saw as 
bad crunch, crunch that was externally motivated, crunch that was uh, pushed on the games workers by executives or by publishers having perhaps unrealistic expectations or demanding extra features or extra labor um, or crunch that resulted from issues with the technology. If, you know, the technology failed you and then you had to put through extra hours, those were all seen as bad forms of crunch. Super excessive or unpaid crunch also fell in the idea of bad crunch. But we also found a lot of places where developers talked about good crunch, good crunch that was uh, still crunch, still semi-excessive overtime. Um, but if it was self-directed, if it was crunch that emerged because you really cared about the project and wanted to make sure it was the best possible, that was seen as good. Um, if it was crunch that emerged from your passion. So um, the, the very popular zombies mode in Call of Duty was given as an example of a good crunch because a small team of developers had voluntarily stayed after hours to make that module and then pitch it to the company. And so that was seen as, yes, they definitely worked all these extra hours, but it was good because it was out of their passion. It was to make the product better. And also on that one, um, good crunch occurs when the ends justify the means, when the final product is worth uh, is seen as worth all of those extra hours. Um, and ideally, good crunch is also limited and paid. But we did find that it didn't always have to be. There were some very, very, very excessive or unpaid crunch periods that developers described that still fell under this idea of good crunch if they saw the end result as justifying all of those extra hours. We ended up theorizing this strong on the work of Lauren Berlant as a form of cruel optimism. And Berlant describes cruel optimism as a relationship in which uh, her direct quote is, something you desire is actually an obstacle to your flourishing. These relationships become cruel only when the object that draws your attachment actively impedes the aim that brought you to it initially. And so we see good crunch as a form of cruel optimism because on the surface, Developers see it as better. Oh, it's it's crunch that we control. It's crunch that's justified in the end. This is better. But good crunch is often still quite excessive. It can have a lot of the same negative impacts that bad crunch can have. Uh, negative impacts on physical health, negative impacts on mental health, negative impacts on family and relationships, because of course, all those extra hours you're at work, you're not socializing with the people you care about. And so we end up arguing that aiming for good crunch is a bit of a trap. It limits the ability for developers to imagine what fully crunchless production might look like. And so it becomes this obstacle to really rethinking labor more expansively. And interestingly enough, you mentioned in your article that because it's such a cultural thing, it impacts even countries which have very strong labor laws. I think it was Sweden in particular. So could, yeah. you, could you maybe talk about this, how, how it helps circumnavigate even the very strong labor laws if it's a culturally embedded concept? Yes. So this is what was really interesting to us. A lot of the developers we uh, were reading articles by or viewing videos by were located in the United States, which of course has historically been not great on labor laws, um, has a kind of libertarian, anti-union, everyone for themselves type of ethos. Um, and so we kind of expected to find these narratives of crunch in that context, particularly in a technological space like games. 
But when we started to find this emerging in other countries that that did have stronger labor laws and stronger histories of labor organizing and protections, that was when we realized we were really onto something. So we found um, stories of good crunch popping up everywhere. The example you referred to was a talk by a developer in Sweden who said, oh, in Sweden, we have these very stringent laws. People can't work past this many hours. Um, they have to have this many days off. But if you get them to really care about what they're doing, people will give you their time freely. And so that's technically not a violation of these labor laws because it's voluntary crunch. And so we found that to be just so interesting that even though the video game industry exists in a lot of different places, which are managed by a lot of different both cultural norms and labor norms, this idea of passion, this idea of working because you care about the product, giving extra time for the good of the game, um, and giving extra time because the ends will be worth it, that permeated across cultural barriers. So we found um, videos from developers in China kind of giving the same story, videos from developers in the United States. And then the example from Sweden, of course, really stuck with us because of the reputation Sweden has of protecting labor uh, so strongly. And I guess then this is at least partially also related to how the video game dev space looks in general. I recently read an article by Anna Ozimek on specifically the Polish game industry, how they are exploiting their workforce. And uh, in that article, she mm -hmm. mentions that many of the people actually see the problems, especially the senior developers uh, with crunch, but they don't really question the entire philosophy behind it, that they question the practices. But then they never say that it's bad because, let's say, this way, it's only single men in their 20s or early 30s who can afford to get into the video game industry. Because if you have to crunch and pull in extreme amounts of overtime, maybe if you're in a different situation, I don't know, if you're a single mother or even a single father, let's say, there's a very small chance that you would be able to put in the same amount of work. So I guess it's also very detrimental to games being more diverse. There's this push to make game development more, more diverse. And I wonder if under these circumstances, if video game developers are still expected to go above and beyond, if, if it's realistic to expect the game developer scene to diversify. Yes, I think that definitely is a challenge. Um, and you see it comes through in a lot of work. So Anna's piece I really enjoyed because I think that's the one where she said she asked people how many hours they worked and they kept giving her the like legal number in Poland. Yeah. And then when she dug deeper, she found that in fact, they worked many more hours than that. They just didn't consider them work. So that's an absolutely fascinating piece that I really enjoyed reading recently. And um Aragon Balut's work, he also finds this as well. He finds that for developers to be able to do these hours, they basically need a partner, often a female partner, who can carry all of the burden of domestic labor that the developer can't. And so he finds that this whole system really ends up resting on a lot of gender inequalities, where uh, usually young male developers are asked to do this work and are able to pull it off because someone else is picking up the slack, usually their female partner. And we can also see this play out in interesting ways in game industry statistics. 
these labor hours do make it unwelcoming to anyone who has caretaking responsibilities, whether that's parenting or caretaking for a, a family member, a parent, et cetera. Um, and the video game industry faces a lot of dropout because of that. I think it's still average that the, the average game developer leaves the industry within five to 10 years. And in some ways that worsens the problem, right? Because then those experienced developers who have figured out workarounds or more efficient ways of doing things leave and take that knowledge with them. And so it, it ends up being kind of this cycle where less experienced game developers have to crunch because of the pressures put on them, because of the iron triangle, and because they don't really know what they're doing, it burns them out and they leave. And then the next cycle of developers comes through it. So it is definitely a barrier both to the game industry's overall growth and towards its diversification. And even though these topics are, let's say, more and more covered in game press, I wanted to ask you how complicit do you think that video game journalists and maybe even players themselves have in general been maintaining crunch? Because I remember reading Jason Schreier's book a few years back, I think it was called Blood, Sweat and Pixels. And it starts, even though he's a very pro-union video gaming journalist, one has to say that, but I think even his book started with a sentence, something like, it's a miracle that any video game gets made at all. And then he proceeds mm -hmm. to either talk about the horror stories or success stories. But still, even he seems to perpetuate at times, along with many other journalists, this success story ethos. So do you think this is changing? Do you think video game journalists are getting better at this? Or are we still stuck glorifying the stories without looking at them too critically? I will say a lot of people still fall into glorifying the stories, but I do think it's going down. And I love that you brought up Jason Schreier as an example, because he is one of the most vocal proponents of better work-life balance, better labor protections in the video game industry. But I agree, reading Blood, Sweat, and Pixels, uh, especially when he's talking about the development of Stardew Valley, he kind of talks admiringly of this developer who ends up being very successful, makes Stardew, becomes a, a multimillionaire but spent like five years of his life before then being supported by his spouse, working uh, you know, all day on this game, really feeling terrible about himself around it. And so all of these costs, Shire does lay out, but then at the end, there's kind of this glowing, like now he's a multimillionaire thing, which, which Brandon and I felt kind of dismissed those critiques. Um, I am glad you brought this up, though, because this is actually the research that Brandon and I are doing now, um, specifically about how players and consumers might be complicit in or might be able to leverage their power as as consumers to try and change things. So our, our very first article on the role players and consumers might play in the persistence of crunch was just recently accepted for publication in the Media Industries Journal. So in it, we collected a set of articles about games produced with crunch and games produced without crunch. And then we analyzed all of the reader comments on those articles. We categorized each user comment as supportive of crunch, critical of crunch, or neutral or unrelated. And we tried to be really conservative in our coding. Like if comments weren't very clearly pro-crunch or anti-crunch, we put them in neutral just to avoid misrepresenting commenters. Um, we then coded all the supportive or critical comments for their main ideas. Why did the commenter support or critique crunch practices? And numerically, we actually found that it was a pretty even split. Slightly more comments were supportive of crunch than were critical of it, but they were 
close, closer than I will say we actually expected at the beginning of the project. Thematically, however, there were some really big differences. So comments that supported crunch practices often viewed it as inevitable. Again, this natural outcome of labor in the creative industry, similar to the viewpoint that we found developers also took. We also found a lot of justification of paid or short-term crunch. Oh, they're being asked to work one extra day a week for two months. That's not bad. And then finally, the probably the biggest thing that we saw was uh, commenters comparing game development crunch to their own experiences as laborers. And this was really interesting because we found a lot of comparisons to both blue collar jobs like construction and white collar jobs like medicine. Uh, one of our favorite quotes was like, oh, good thing doctors never complain about these things, which is funny because I know a lot of doctors and they do complain about these things. Um, but this idea that game developers didn't have a right to complain because they sat at a desk in an air conditioned office for these hours, um, this idea that it wasn't real work the way perhaps uh, construction outside in hot weather or rain or standing on your feet all day saving lives as a doctor counted as real work. Comments that were critical of crunch practices really focused on crunch's negative consequences, um, consequences for developers' physical or mental health, the time that they ended up spending away from their family, um, even the negative consequences on the industry, this idea of burnout and losing experienced developers and all the things that they could bring to the medium. Um, critical comments also blamed Crunch's persistence on executives, uh, executives who they saw as not valuing their employees, or even executives that they just felt hadn't been trained correctly. They felt that the video game industry overall was not good at providing management training. And then finally, uh, comments that were critical of Crunch really advocated for better work practices across industries, not just games. So we saw a lot of comments that said things like, if your takeaway from here is, oh, that doesn't sound bad, I work the, that many hours too, you should rethink your labor practices as well, not critique developers for complaining about it. So we did find a lot of people paying a lot of attention to uh, labor practices, labor laws. There were actually big divergences into the labor laws of different countries where commenters argued back and forth about whether certain crunch practices were even allowed in different parts of the world. So we did find a lot of consumer attention to how games could improve, um, but they are up against this longstanding ideology that crunch is just what happens when you're working on a creative project. And I wouldn't forgive myself if I didn't ask you about unionization, because it may be, even if not a silver bullet for the situation, one of the major waves that tries to solve this problem somehow. Do you think it's an effective way of tackling crunch, or is it at least a step that's going to be effective for the initial phases of trying to discuss the culture of crunch? I'm really excited to see what happens with some of these uh, unionization attempts, especially because a lot of them are in some of the most vulnerable areas of gaming. Quality assurance testers get a cycle of employment layoff, employment layoff quite frequently because they're only needed for certain parts of the project. And so they are one of the more vulnerable um, groups of employees in the video game industry. And it does seem to be that support for unions are growing in the industry. Um, so I mentioned uh, Joanna Westar and Yosemarie Legault earlier. Um, they run the 
developer satisfaction survey every year, which assesses um, who's in the industry, how they feel about it, what the big issues are, et cetera. And they've recently found increased support for unions, um, but the developers specifically want an industry-wide union, something similar to the uh, the Writers Guild of America or the Screen Actors Guild, where it sets base standards for employment that then go with you. And this is, of course, because video game development is a very project-based industry. You often move between different jobs and studios over the course of your career. So developers see an industry-wide union as perhaps more capable of handling those job shifts than uh, one in an individual workplace. Um, speaking to, to people like Joanna, um, there are some really big challenges in instituting such a union. Studios, for instance, cover a range of different sizes. So how do you avoid placing a very unfair burden on perhaps an eight or 10 person studio while also making sure your restrictions are stringent enough to change things at a thousand person studio like Activision Blizzard. Um, but popular support for the idea at least seems to be on the rise. And we've also seen groups like Game Workers Unite uh, trying to kind of champion the idea of an industry-wide union as well. So we'll see what happens over the next couple of years. And maybe to mention also some positive examples, uh, could you recall a game studio, or it can be also a just a handful of indie developers who have successfully managed to avoid crunch because we have so many of these heroic stories of crunching and crunching and, I don't know, giving up your family almost to be able to release a game. So it would be nice if we had some heroic stories of absolutely A-grade project management where developers have managed to avoid crunch. So could you recall any, if there are any? They do exist, I promise. Um... So in our recent piece about how players react to crunch, I said we compared articles about a game produced with crunch and articles about a game produced without crunch. That was uh, the new Ratchet and Clank. Ratchet and Clank, A Rift Apart by Insomniac Games. Um, the company has claimed that they produced that without crunch. Now, sometimes these claims can be a little bit tough to assess. Um, but we have yet to see someone come on the record and say, you know, they're lying. I definitely crunched on this project. So it seems right now that the claim is supported, at least thus far. And that's really interesting because Ratchet and Clank is a, what we would call a triple A game, a production of a decently sized studio for a console. Um, some of the other examples we've seen of studios that have limited or even um, eliminated crunch, they tend to come from what we've referred to in the past in a smaller piece as the margins of game development. So some of the examples that we've relied on are game developers, Hank Howie and David Amor. So Hank Howie used to lead Blue Fang Games, which produced, uh, among other things, the Zoo Tycoon series. And David Amor uh, helped lead Relentless Software, which produced the Buzz quiz games for, I believe, the Xbox. Um, so they are producing what we might see as more perhaps casual um, or family-friendly games rather than something like a Halo, a Call of Duty, a World of Warcraft. But they were very long-time anti-crunch advocates who attempted to champion work-life balance in their studio. And again, it seems like they were successful in this. So we actually looked at Glassdoor ratings of their companies um, where employees can anonymously report on their experiences at the company. And we found a lot of people really supported this idea that these studios had great work-life balance, humane working hours, et cetera, um, in a way that, that we don't see on Glassdoor reviews of other companies. 
And so we argued uh, in this piece we wrote that their lessons were somewhat ignored by big studios because they were smaller or more marginal. This idea that like, oh, well, that's all well and good for you making your little quiz games, but that's not going to work in our AAA studio. When you look at their methods, though, we think a lot of them are pretty reasonable and could be applied if people took them seriously. So they had pretty simple recommendations overall. They argued for set work hours, expecting people in at a certain time, but also sending them home at a certain time, making sure that they rested, making sure that they had a chance to recharge before coming back the next day. Um, one of the more controversial ones that David Amor suggested was limiting internet and recreational gameplay at work. Um, of course, it's one of the perks we think about when we work in game development is like, oh, cool, you just get to play games. But he said, no, we're working on a game playing a bunch of other unrelated games recreationally is not helping us produce it. We're wasting our time and that's how you fall into the trap of crunch. Um, they were also big proponents of scheduling, scheduling projects overall, but also scheduling them with a buffer of extra time, assuming that something would go wrong with the technology, with the team. Um, I think one of them told a story about how their producer broke a leg in a skiing accident, but because they'd planned in time in the schedule, that person was able to recover and not have to come back to work all casted up. Um, they argued for cultivating good relationships with publishers so that they let you add this extra time to your schedule so that they don't pressure you to change or overdo it. Um, and that delivering products on time in budget is the way to do that. And then they didn't necessarily get rid of overtime entirely but they did suggest using it smartly and using it sparingly. So uh, Hank Howey, for instance, said that there's a lot of research on productivity that suggests workers can take temporary bumps in their hours of about 15 to 20%. But once you go over that, you're actually damaging the both the employees and the product because people's productivity drops after that. And they start introducing kind of more problems than they would if you just let them rest. And so we said, if we needed to crunch if we needed some overtime, we did, but in these highly restrictive ways. And so it wasn't, you can never do any overtime ever. It was, if you really need overtime, be smart about how you employ it and pay attention to research on productivity. Make sure that you're not actually putting more hurdles in your way than you're fixing. That's amazing to hear that there's plenty of stories to go about. So I think that's a pretty positive ending. But before we say goodbyes, I would just like to ask you if there's anything else you would like to add, something that you think is usually overlooked in this discussion or something that we haven't covered. One of the things that I think is going to be really interesting is how the industry responds uh, following the pandemic. Of course, we've seen a lot more attention to employment, a lot more attention to meaningful jobs rather than just jobs for a wage as people have been rethinking their relationship with work. Um, and we also saw the video game industry switch a lot to remote labor during the pandemic like everyone did. And some of the stories coming out of the industry seem to suggest that that actually may have made crunch worse because people were kind of on different internet. They couldn't connect with each other as well. But it's also possible that As people adjust to that, 
maybe it might make it better because people are working in their own space, being able to, to tune out at the end rather than having that peer pressure to stay late in the office to show that you're doing it. So I don't know how those trends are going to turn out, but it's going to be one of the really interesting things to see the industry grapple with in the future. Because um, this is not just a games issue, of course. We're all rethinking our relationship with work on all fronts. I will say it's also been very interesting to study crunch as an academic, because academics are very bad <laughs> at avoiding crunch ourselves. So when conference deadlines are coming up or something like that, Brandon and I will sometimes be texting each other being like, oh man, I feel like we're really failing as crunch researchers right now because you know we're putting in a few extra hours. So this is definitely not a games industry alone issue. It's one that we could rethink in quite a few places, um, but we're working on it. We're gonna see what happens. Yes, I mean, that's, a, that's an entirely new topic, I think, academics and crunch. We fall into yeah. a lot of the same traps, right? We're here because we are passionate about the work. We care about what we're doing. And that can be a, a double-edged sword. It can be a really good thing um, on those days where you're very excited about what you're doing. But it can be a bad thing when it leads to you, you know, working at 10 p.m. on a paper. Yeah, maybe there's some more unionization waiting to happen for <laughs> academic workers. All right, Amanda, yeah, thank yeah. you very much for joining me. Very curious about the paper that's about to be published. And I guess it's going to have also many, many continuations as we go down the road of talking more and more about unionization and, and labor relations in the video game industry. So thank you very much and have a great day there over in the US. Yes, thank you for having me.